eager to stand up against the tyranny of the devil. Don't worry, we'll get there. But first we have to sit with God's truth. Then we need to learn to walk in God's ways. And then we will be equipped and prepared to stand in times of adversity. So Ephesians 4 is kind of the shifting point where we've sat with some of these things and now we start to walk with them. So hear these words from Ephesians 4, 1 through 13. But before we do so, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. God, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus Christ made manifest here our primary concern. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Ephesians 4, 1 through 13. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we consider some of the good things in life, things that we enjoy and celebrate, there is a very simple and basic pattern that we can follow through most of them. We, we work hard to earn something, and when we earn it, we then receive it and enjoy it. E-R-E, -E, earn, receive, enjoy. This is the pattern by which much of our lives is oriented. If you think about um, those who are maybe enjoying the three-day weekend, we've, we've worked hard, we have earned a little bit of time off, and we receive some time off, and we get to enjoy it. We think of graduates who, um, whether it be from high school or college or from whatever program they've found themselves uh, getting through, they've worked hard, they have earned their diploma, they receive it, and then they enjoy either the, the freedom that it brings for those who are like, finally, I'm ready to play Alice Cooper's Schools Out Forever, 
or for those who are finding this is the, the next wave of my life or this is my key to get into the next step that I've wanted. We work hard. We earn it. We receive it. And then we enjoy it. We do this in relationships. We, we work hard to, to earn some, some trust and intimacy. And then we receive and enjoy the fruits of our labor, even in relationships. Earn, receive, enjoy is a pattern through much of our lives. And, and, and it is a biblical pattern. It's found very strongly throughout the book of Proverbs, where there's this hard work put forward and then this enjoyment of the fruits of labor. And it's also found even in Ecclesiastes, which would tell us that of all the things that are meaningless in life, the best that we can do is to enjoy that which we have worked hard for, or best yet, to enjoy the work that we are doing. Earn, receive, enjoy is a regular pattern in our lives. And yet, when it comes to salvation, the pattern is broken by God. This pattern of earn, receive, enjoy that God has given us elsewhere is broken in Jesus Christ because our salvation was not something that we could work for or earn. We did not earn God's favor by our merit or by anything that we did. We do not earn, receive, enjoy salvation. We have simply received from Jesus Christ. Earlier in Ephesians 2, we were told that this, the, the gift of faith that we have received is a gift from God, not by works, not by earning, so that no one can boast. This is the pattern breaker, is when Jesus Christ came into the world and died for us and rose again for us, this pattern was broken. It still exists in other areas of life, but when we think of salvation, when we think of God's call upon our lives, we receive and then enjoy. And all of the work, all of the earning, it didn't come at the front part. The work that we do is done in gratitude, done in gratitude for all that God has done. Earn, receive, enjoy, except for salvation where we have simply received these good gifts of God for us, the people of God. Not by anything we did, not by anything that we proved, but simply that we were able to trust and believe and receive not a good gift, but the good gift. This is why the Apostle Paul, as we turn from kind of the things we've been sitting with, and now we start to walk with them a little bit, says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy, kind of the ongoing action, is to live a worthy life. But it's of the calling that you have received, past tense. You have already been given this gift. Live into the reality that God has already offered and bestowed upon you. Now, God gave a teaser trailer to this, and uh, Pastor Audrey was wise to point it out earlier this week, something that um, our good friend Dr. Bechtel at the seminary had pointed out to us. God gave a pattern for this already when it comes to God's action in our lives. Did the people of Israel receive the law before or after they received God's covenant promises? 
after. First, God acted. First, God met Abram under the, under the oaks of Mamre. First, God called and said, you were once not a people, but now you are my people. First, God called, and then, later, the law is given. But it is God who acts first. And now, the fulfillment of this is found in Jesus Christ, who has poured out his grace in, as he has apportioned it, in, in the measure to us that Christ has given us grace, this is God acting first. And our response is to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. For it's already yours, the calling has already been given, the price has already been paid. And now it's a matter of what might you do with it? It's like receiving an inheritance that you didn't even know to ask for. And then when you receive it, how do you steward it well? Verse 2 would tell us that the stewardship of this salvation that we have inherited by God's grace is to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble and gentle. Completely humble and gentle. Does anyone want to say that they're completely humble? That's a trick question, because if you do, like, you're not even humble by saying it. So there's just no way to say at any point that we could be completely humble. But to be completely humble is a virtue. But once again, it is a virtue that we learn by paying attention to God's work in our life. How can we not be humbled by the great grace that God has poured out on us? How can we not be amazed and in awe that, that Jesus would love us, that he would turn his face towards us with grace and favor and love. How good is that? How humbling it is. Not in a humbleness that brings about shame, not that we're ashamed before God, but that we are humbled, a delighted humbled, when we think of God's love for us. Be completely humble Remembering that Christ humbled himself and descended from highest heaven to be born into a manger, to die upon a cross, to rise again, and to ascend into heaven. Be humbled, remembering Jesus, but also be completely humble and gentle. Most of us are reading a translation that would say gentle, and there is a good reason for that. And, and we in the church today probably have some work to do in reclaiming this understanding of a, a strong gentleness, that, that gentleness and weakness are not the same, but rather that gentle and strong may coexist well. But if you're maybe reading an older translation or you have a King James somewhere at home, and if you flip through the pages of that, you'll find that the older translations from Greek to English of Ephesians 4 would say, be completely humble and meek. Meek is not a word that we use very often. And it doesn't sound like anything that we would want to aspire to be. We probably know it best from the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But meekness is not something that we naturally pursue because meekness, to be meek, this type of gentleness is the type that is not so worried about one's rights. 
the meekness that would make sure that we don't injure, even if maybe some injury falls to us. Meekness is, is not inherent to our way of thinking or to our DNA. We are a rights-based culture. We thrive on defining our rights. It is a reflex. There is a reason that even when you are arrested, you are told your rights. We are a rights-based culture. And there is a time in injustice to, to stand up and, and fight for rights. And yet what we're called to in living out our calling with one another is to be completely humble and gentle or meek with one another. Meekness sounds easy until we've been hurt, offended, or felt that we have been wronged. And in that moment, this meek gentleness is the last thing that we would pursue. I don't think the Apostle Paul intends for us to be a doormat, nor do I think God's Holy Spirit calls us to be so passive. And yet when we think about living together as one body, the, the unity, the oneness that Ephesians 4 is pushing us into as we learn to walk in faithfulness, is one where we remember that there are times where we're going to have to be a little bit meek. When we remember that just as we have been wronged, we have wronged others. And we might find our meekness there by being patient. Or a good old word for patience, long-suffering. If we think about being patient, well, most of the times that you're a patient are times that involve waiting, sitting in a waiting room. Or if you're trying to be patient in traffic, I am often reminded that if I grit my teeth while waiting for a stoplight in Zealand, it is a reminder that I should never live in a metropolitan area. Clearly, that patience is not the virtue that I can claim the most of. But we are patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. These are all things that we learn from Jesus. All of these virtues that we try on are not things that we do to earn God's grace and favor, but ways in which we respond to the grace and favor that God has already given us, that God has acted and has given us a calling, and then has asked us to live into that calling. And doesn't just ask us even to do that on our own, but as we go further into the letter, the, the whole idea is that God's Holy Spirit is what enables us to live out our calling. How is it that we can confront when something has been done wrong against us? How can we confront it even with a spirit of meekness? How can we be humble when we really do feel that we should be recognized? for our hard work, that we can be proud of things because we do earn, receive, and enjoy many things in life. This is the work of God's Spirit, continuing to dwell in not only our individual hearts, but in all of us as a body, bearing with one another in love. If you were to give a shorthand to bearing with one another in love, if you were to think of the most stressful family get-together you've ever been to, bearing with one another in love might also be translated putting up with each other. 
Are there people in your life that you feel like you just kind of have to put up with? That might be a more cynical way of saying the same sentiment. Bear with them in love. Not put up with them on your own terms or on your own hope of patience, but bear with them in love, remembering how patient Christ is with us. This is the calling that we have received. It's been given. We get to sit with that reality. We can reflect and be grateful for it and meditate upon it and what it means. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. But now we get to start trying on what does that look like for us? This is the turning point of the book. And then the Apostle Paul makes a strange reference. I say strange not because it's strange to quote scripture, but that there's a word change involved. In verse 8, this is why it says, and then some of your Bibles might give you a footnote to Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. If you follow the footnote, you'll find Psalm 68, and then at verse 18, it says, When you, Lord, ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people. Paul says he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. The psalm says he received gifts from people. There's a couple different options, and for those that would be interested, we could have a really kind of fun, interesting, exegetical exercise in where this might have come from. If there is a variant of Psalm 68 that Paul was reading, but try this on for the simplest, the simplest explanation is often still the best. We understand that in Christ, we find the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In Christ, we find the fullest measure, the best understanding of all that God has given us in the story of Scripture. And so when we read the Old Testament, though we read it on its own merit, the ways in which God was at work, there are things that we might understand differently when we think of Jesus, Jesus being the clearest revelation of God's character and personhood. Psalm 68 might be one such example where we're re-understanding what this would be about because Psalm 68 has lots of great language about a conquering king. But listen to how the psalm starts. Psalm 68, beginning at verse 1. It's 35 verses. We're not going to read all of it, but if you want one to sit with and reflect on, I commend Psalm 68 this week. They're all good, so you can find a different one tomorrow. Psalm 68, verse 1. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke, as, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Now hold there for a second. If you were reading this psalm in the days before Jesus, if you were a good, God-fearing person, you would think of everyone else as your enemies to be scattered and you as the righteous who would be glad. What might have started to occur in some minds, though, like someone who is as well-studied as the Apostle Paul, 
is that actually before God, with the weight of our sin upon our shoulders, without Jesus in mind, we are all unrighteous. And that it is only those who are in Christ who are the righteous who may be glad and rejoice before God that they may be happy and joyful. That the enemies aren't just those out there, but that all of us, without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, were enemies to God. The psalm continues. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. The character of God, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling, God who takes care of those in need. God sets the lonely in families. Think of what Paul is saying in Ephesians, that we are all one family. We belong to one another. God sets the lonely in families. God says to those who once were not a people, you are the people of God. God sets the lonely in families and he leads out the prisoners with singing. To change Psalm 68 in our understanding that when God ascended on high, he took many captives. Instead of the picture of a king who has conquered a land and takes the people as captives, the way that the Apostle Paul quotes the psalm is to say that we were all captives to sin. And when God ascended on high, he took the captives, all of us, with him and gave gifts to his people. He took captives. He took us who were captive to sin and set us free and gave gifts to his people. He gave us this calling that we are called to live a life worthy of. We are captives no more because we belong heart and soul, body and mind in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Christ gave gifts. Certainly he received gifts but also Christ gave gifts to his people. Christ gave us gifts to use to the lines that we just sung to, to make his love be known and shown in us. God gave each one of us either certain abilities of mind or body, certain aptitudes, certain gifts, and certain places to play out this calling that we have received. God receives gifts. God receives our prayers. God receives our worship. And God receives our good acts to the best of our ability, to our best options of faithfulness that we bring before him. God receives these with delight. But first, it was God who gave gifts to us. And the first gift he gave us was the inheritance that we could be called sons and daughters of the king. So Christ himself, verse 11, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a highlighted list. Christ gave gifts, some that would be apostles, apostles being the sent out ones, those who go in God's grace and power. The prophets, 
those who are given that gift of speaking that timely word, a profound or challenging word that comes to them from God's Holy Spirit. The evangelists, the missionaries, whether it be overseas or across the street or in your workplace, the, the evangelists, quite literally the good news bringers, the pastors and teachers, those who shepherd and open the scriptures and, and, and work with all of God's people that we might be attentive to God in our lives. God gives us these good gifts. And to what end? Not that the apostles can boast that they're better than the evangelists or that the teachers can say that they're better than the prophets. None of this would be fitting to the calling that we have received. But rather, verse 12, all of these gifts are given by Jesus, a, grace, a, a measure of grace apportioned, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. What gifts has God given you to know if, they've been, if it's been given by God and if it's being used faithfully? The simple test and measure is this. Is it used to equip God's people for works of service to build up the body of Christ? Are we building up the body of Christ? Are we building up one another? Are we equipping one another for works of service? Or are we sabotaging, holding back, crossing our arms, judging those around us, or finding ourselves more useful than those of lesser use in our eyes? Christ gave gifts to build up Christ's church. We don't earn them, but we receive them and enjoy them. And hopefully it is a joy and gift to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Not in shame, but in humility. Not as a doormat, but in the right gentle meekness that God calls us to. So in other areas of life, as you work hard, as you strive, earn, receive, enjoy, celebrate, but when it comes to Christ, remember that we first and foremost received. We received and are therefore called to enjoy. We received freely to enjoy fully. Are you living a life worthy of the calling that you have received? Either way, you have received a calling. And where we shift now from the sitting with God's promises, now we move into the future verses of this book with this call to walk, to walk it out, to, to live out this calling that we have received. And pay attention, friends. Pay attention to the gifts that you've been given, to not neglect them, and to make sure that they are used in the right ways and in the right places until we all reach a unity of faith and fullness in Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have given us a tremendous calling 
We have received it freely like an inheritance. You have given us this calling to be your people and to bring others to knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of fullness in you, Jesus. Lord, may we be humbled by remembering that you have given us this calling and help us by your Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of the calling. In whatever ways that you have equipped us, may we serve. And may we always sit with the truth of your promises, with that calling that we have received, that the first thing that we always remember about ourselves is that we belong to you, that we are your children. And whether we could find ourselves being called an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher, may we remember that all of us have a calling in whatever way you have gifted us to equip your people for works of service. Help us, God, to be honest before you, to be honest with our brothers and sisters, to bear with one another in love, and this all to build up your church as a sign and witness of your kingdom here on this earth that people may know you and see you within us. Lord, hear our prayers. Amen. As we go to a time of congregational prayer, um, one is just the simple and, and, and obvious reminder